Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, 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 and instead of monster trucks, we have your monster calls. Calls to 866-65-THINK. Again, the number to call, 866-65-THINK. That's because we encourage you to think for yourself at the Survival Podcast. Uh, before I get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, who I call the original survival podcast sponsor. They're the original sponsor because they're the first sponsor. They were the first people that stepped up and said, hey, Jack, guess what? We'd like to sponsor your show. And I went, oh, great, but I don't really know what to do with you yet because I don't have a program. And they said, well, we'll put a banner and you'll talk about us on the show and we'll give you some money. And I said, I understand that. I've been doing this a while, but I need a program for this. I built the entire program, the entire advertising program around Safe Castle Royal. And basically it was, will you pass muster? When I turn loose my moderators on the forum and they go to tear you apart by checking all your reputations online, will you pass? And they did with Flying Colors. They've been with us now for almost four years. They give away their premium discount membership that other people pay $49 for, absolutely for free to our members. And they have everything you could think of for your prepping needs. The easiest way to remember their website is prepared.pro. Prepared like you need to be, and pro like a professional, prepared.pro. You can check them out there anytime you want. Make sure you check out their sister site you can link to from their main site, where they uh, build some of the best hardened shelters around. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags. Another community success story, right? So Kelly John Doe works in the fulfillment industry, fulfilling of product and service and stuff like that. His company does stuff for people like Major League Baseball. He starts listening to this show about three and a half years ago, decides, hey, you know what, this is a great niche to be in, and sets up a site to sell survival gear bags and gear to go in those bags, and starts you know, building his new business three years ago. It took a long time before a sponsorship slot opened up, but when he said he wanted to be a sponsor, I let him right in the door. Top quality gear, top quality stuff, and now he's actually behind the Survival Podcast gear shop as well. But check out Survival Gear Bags for some really cool stuff. And there's been things I've like looked for for my own personal needs, and I didn't know where to go. I went to Kelly. Next thing I know, they're carrying and stocking something that fills those needs. Really responsive, great guy, great gear. Check it out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next up, do check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop. Hey, the Every Citizen of Sentinel caps are in. They're awesome. I'm going to have a video segment of today's show on YouTube. The video segment I did on Monday, I'm wearing the cap. They're awesome. It says, not on my watch on the back. Every Citizen is a Sentinel uh, logo on the front. Uh, check that out. Check out the, the Every Citizen of Sentinel t-shirts. From what I know, the patches for the Every Citizen of Sentinel are now in. I think a 100 are on the way to me. If I see you in New Hampshire, you might get one at the Liberty Forum. So I want to remind you about that. New Hampshire uh, Liberty uh, Liberty Forum from the Free State Project will be running. I'll be there. Uh, there'll be a link to information about that today. But remember, if you got till the 14th of January, I think, on this contest, donate 10 bucks to any charity. Uh, send a copy of your receipt and some other details to the folks at Liberty Forum. You could win a free VIP ticket to the Liberty Forum or some other cool stuff. I'll have a link in the show notes to that today as well. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts available nowhere else to a tremendous number of our sponsors and a lot of other great supporters, over 30 companies providing you discounts. Uh, and those are discounts that if you use them, 
over the year, and you buy stuff for gardening, for homesteading, for tactical self-defense, for long-term food storage, all that stuff that we talk about all the time, if you buy any of that stuff, it's impossible that your membership in the end isn't going to pay for itself, and you'll be supporting the show at 18.3 cents an episode. For more information, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, or click on the Member Support Brigade banner over where the rest of our sponsors are. All right, with that wrapped up, ready to get into your calls, but I'm going to have to kind of give you the Jack, Jack Spirico whooping again on these calls, folks. I want you to do this for me when you make a call in the next week or two. I want you to call in. I want you to start your call with, Jack, my question is, or Jack, my comment is, and then I want you, with no elaborate explanation or details, to say your question or your comment, and then give the details. It took me two and a half hours today to dig out 12 calls for today's show. Specifically, not because the calls in of themselves were bad, but because I had to listen to a call ramble on for a minute before you got to your point of your question or longer. Fortunately, for a lot of people that got on the air today, there was a kind of a lull in calls over the break. And I had to go back into December and even November to get enough calls for today's show. That is usually not the case. Usually there's a high volume of calls every week. I would expect that that will continue in the next week. And Friday I'll be looking through a ton of calls that came in in the last week, week and a half. And when I have a bunch of calls and a bunch of people have done that format and I get your call and it's, we'll um, see, uh, I live in Sheboyganville and I have this field and there was this one time that my neighbor, I, sorry, I'm not being a jerk There's a time constraint limitation of producing a show every day. And that usually gets delete before I ever hear your question or point. I'm really not being a jerk. I'm really not being tough on anybody. I really want you guys, because here's the deal. If you'll work with me, folks, these shows can become 14, 15, 20 call shows. I limit them to 10 to 12 generally because it takes me so long to vet the calls out and get them. If you'll start with your question or comment, if you'll call from a quiet location, or and if you're on a cell phone, if you'll make sure you have at least two bars, you'll help me go faster. I'll be able to get more stuff in. Your calls will be shorter, more direct, and to the point. You can give me all the details you want after your question or comment. Again, I don't mean to be a hard ass. I'm trying to help you, and I promise you, You won't make four calls in a row before you get to your final call. I get that all the time. I see the same number. One, two, three, four. And I don't even look at the first three. I go to the last one. And then if I ever check the other ones, it's always bumbling, fumbling, whatever. Please, get your question or comment, one to two sentences, then the details. Jack, my name is, my question is, boom. No details. Just the raw question in its rawest form, then give me details. That way, if you go on too long and ramble and ramble and ramble, and I go, okay, at this point I have enough information, I might still play your call because I can cut that part out for you. All right. Sorry to be tough on you guys, but, again, I'm trying to help you. Let's go ahead and take that first call today. Hey, Jack. This is Mary in northern Idaho. Where would I list a house for preppers to find? Um, we've, we've got one in, in northern Idaho that we want to sell, complete with solar panels and lister diesel engine generator that we want to sell because we want to get back closer to family. If you could give me a website, um, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. We love your show. Bye. I have a few suggestions for you. Number one, immediately broaden your audience beyond preppers. 
Preppers are great people to deal with, great people to sell to. But if you listen to the calls, you'll notice that a lot of them are at various walks and stages in their life. Some are ready to buy a new retreat up in Idaho, and some of them dream of it someday. And no matter how good your place is, you can't sell it to somebody who's dreaming of it someday. You have to sell your real estate to someone who has money now that wants to buy what you have. So that's the first piece of advice I have there. The next piece of advice, a couple of sites that I think would make good sense to, uh, to have this property listed on would be the lands of, you know, fill in the blank. So landsofidaho.com, uh, heavily, uh, rural acreage, etc. That would be one place. Another place that I would look is landwatch.com. So, and that's like, I figured this is a great question because I can answer two questions and one that's always there. Where do I find great properties? Uh, lands of is a great network of sites. So whatever state you want to look in, put lands of and stick that state in there. You'll find they have one. And uh, you can find a tremendous uh, amount of really cool p properties. You can search for properties that are owner-financed. Only you can search for conventional properties. You can limit your acreage, limit your price, specify counties, all kinds of good stuff like that. So since it's a great site to go searching for land, it's a great site to sell land, including land with housing on it. Landwatch.com has been described by a lot of members of our forum as like prepper porn. Like it's just like great to be on there and looking at all this great stuff and, and what have you. So there's a lot of eyeballs on those two sites with that mindset then that's a good place to go. And understand, somebody might want to buy your place because they want a hunting cabin, and they're loaded, and sell it to them, and, and get out you know, get out from under the property you don't want anymore. Somebody might be an eco-hippie, and they might have no interest in prepping, dude. I'm not worried about nothing, man, but I want to be like up in the wilderness. And if they have, happen to have money, right, sell it to them. So the first thing you have to do when it comes to re marketing real estate is – If you can go into what we would call a vertical market with your marketing, uh, prepping, eco, what have you, fine. Expose your property to the vertical. But when it comes to selling the property, have a universal marketing message that goes into the regular real estate channels, realtor.com and things like that. Um, I, I really have a strong piece of advice for anybody selling property right now. Spend about $400. Get a licensed appraiser to appraise your property before you put it on the market. Don't let your real estate agent come in with comps. Properties are under appraising. I just went through it myself as I've laid out on the show like crazy right now. If you set your property at a price close to the appraisal, and you might go a little higher. You might go 10% over so that when somebody comes in and makes you an offer, um, you can you can come down and be in that appraised range. That appraisal will be absolutely useless to you when the buyer makes an offer and goes for financing and needs to get their own appraisal. It will not do you any good. It will be $400 that is gone. It will have to be done again. But you'll know you're in the right ballpark. So the two pieces, big pieces of advice I have for you, get a pre-sale appraisal, not by your real estate agent who wants you to list with them. Why would your agent be a little bit optimistic Right, And I can't tell you that I've seen a real estate agent name or, 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 or nail uh, a, a property value with comparables any time in the last four or five properties I've either bought or sold. Not once. I haven't seen one be within 15% of the eventual appraisal, and I consider the 15% to be pretty damn close. Right, 
But when I've did, when I've done a pre-sale appraisal, those guys are usually within five percent of each other. So I would recommend those two things: good, strong marketing message to everybody, pre-sale appraisal, and price the property maybe three to five percent above the appraisal. It'll probably move faster. And when you do get a buyer, you won't get derailed in the end. You won't end up in a bad situation. Or if you can't afford to sell the property, you'll know that. Or If the property's going to appraise too low for what you're trying to do, you'll know that you have to go after and court a certain type of buyer. And then you can go deep into the vertical marketing. On the verticals with the sites, Landwatch and Lands Of are probably the two best that I can think of. It might be worth a little classified ad in Mother Earth News and going for the eco thing a little bit there, the homesteader thing, or Backwoods Home Magazine. Those are very inexpensive. Um, and don't overlook simple things like Craigslist. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate the power of Craigslist for large ticket things. I hired one of the best web developers that I've ever met into Franklin Spirico Media back when I was running that company. And I mean, this guy was worth 80 grand. And I probably, I got him, I think the first year we had him at 35,000 for his salary because it's what we could afford as a new company. But he only lived five minutes away. And we gave him flexibility. He was having a, his first baby. He was in kind of a bad situation with um, his uh, his soon-to-be wife, ex-girlfriend, whatever. I don't even know where that went now. But he had a lot of things he had to deal with. And he also had an entrepreneurial spirit. So we were able to get him for a song because we covered health care. And it was close to work. And he didn't have to drive down into Dallas every day. Um, and if you can get a guy of that caliber off Craigslist, you might be able to sell a house of the caliber you have on Craigslist as well. So I, I would go that route as well. And, hey, you know what? We have a swap meet uh, forum in uh, the TSP forums. Post it on there. Let people know. I mean, I think you have to do 10 posts before that board shows up because we don't want people showing up just to sell stuff to our community. So we have a threshold. Uh, so if you haven't made enough posts, go in there and talk to some people, get to know some people. That's a good idea first anyway. And uh, get that thing listed on our forum. And uh, there is one more place you might want to consider. Um, James Res Wesley Rawls of the uh, book Patriots, The Coming Collapse, which I find is amusing fiction that can help you learn some things, but it's ridiculous in its entirety. Uh, but I actually really like a lot of the work that he does on his blog. And uh, in spite of what I just said about Patriots, I've read it twice, so there you go. I, it's like it's like a bad car wreck you, you, you can't take your eyes off of. Um, but his blog's great, and he has a, a sister site called survivalrealty.com. So you might want to check into that either as a buyer or a seller out there, folks. And with that, let's go ahead and take another one of your calls. Hey, Jack. This is Kenny again from Southern California. I was um, had a question about... Uh, Modern uses of things that we use to clean ourselves. I was uh, putting hair, uh, shampoo in my hair the other day, and I was just wondering, back in the day, that not a lot of other people used shampoo or uh, brush their teeth or floss or anything like that. So I'm wondering, is any of this stuff really necessary? Uh, did people in the olden days, did they lose their teeth a lot, or did they not... Uh, put shampoo in their hair um, just wondering about you know it'd be a cool concept for a show how we use all this modern stuff but people back then didn't use it and is it really good for us to be using it now uh, thanks again for the show Jack I really love it I listen to it all the time um, and thanks again bye 
Oh, it is a good question, and the reality is that as human beings concerned about our hygiene, things like uh, what you would call a toothpaste or a soap or a shampoo and what have you are really a good idea to help us stay clean, and cleanliness is something that helps you stay healthy. And the biggest killer in most disasters is not the disaster itself. It's not even gangs of roving hordes. It's illness that takes hold after the acute nature of the disaster is fully realized. It's poor sanitation and things like that. So, yeah, we need that stuff. But is there a problem with modern chemical cleaners in general, whether they're for cleaning your stove or cleaning your body? And the answer is yes. There's a lot of additives and stuff in these things that really aren't good for us. And if you just take a shampoo bottle and start reading, you'll see a lot of multisyllabic words in there that you probably have no idea what they are. And some of them are foaming agents that came right out of chemical research that was part of World War II. Uh, I'm not saying that it's stuff designed to kill you, but you know when, when manufacturers found out there were certain chemicals they could include in shampoo, and when you started lathering the shampoo up your head, it would foam like all get out, and they knew that would sell, and they knew it wouldn't kill you immediately, and it wasn't necessarily that bad for you, but it might be bad, and we don't really know. And Remember, when they started being used, this was back when doctors did cigarette commercials and said, I always recommend that my, you know, my patients smoke, you know, Paul Mall, the most natural cigarette available, or something like that, right? So it was a different mindset. But these these things, because people don't just like you know take a shower and soap up and, and lather up and then drop over dead, and they make you smell good and you know they make you look good. So people have accepted them. But there's a lot of things in there that are damaging. Here's one thing I've noticed for myself. I made a switch a while ago to using nothing but natural homemade style soaps, like old school lye soap. And it always amazed me that you needed shampoo. It really did. I mean, you'd take a shower, and if, you know, when I was broke and young, and you were like, you didn't have any shampoo left, and you know, I'm talking like 21, right out of the army, sharing an apartment with a buddy. We were both always broke, probably because we were blowing too much money in bars, chasing girls, and what have you. Um, but you, if you ran out of shampoo and you washed your hair with soap, it just was, it was not good. You know, it really wasn't. It was kind of like oily, matted down. It, it was clean, but it, right? So I started using these natural, you know, just plain. I'm talking about the soap like you can get from Patrick and Emily over at uh, Simply Cleansing. Or you can get all kinds of places people make this stuff and different smells and things. And I decided when I got some of that, I'm going to try using it on my hair and see what happens. And my hair came out as though I had used shampoo, not bar soap. And that started to make me question, well, what the hell's in... Bar soap that we buy from stores that makes my hair look like that when this stuff is basically soap and it doesn't. And, and, and what does that mean for my skin? So pretty much this is what I do. I do believe that fluoride in toothpaste does help your teeth. I don't believe it belongs in our water. So I pretty much brush my teeth with fluoride toothpaste one day and peroxide and baking soda the next. And I alternate back and forth. And I use a very small amount of toothpaste from you know conventional uh, fluoride toothpaste to keep that minimalized because there is a lot of sublingual and subcutaneous absorption of fluoride, but it's minimal compared to having it drenched in everything you eat and drink and cook if it's in your water supply. So I do use conventional toothpaste. I have stopped using shampoos, uh, conditioners, all that crap. We have stopped using laundry detergent from like Tide and Gain and all that. We now make our own laundry detergent. It's very easy. Uh, my wife does it. She makes up like a half of a five-gallon bucket, and it just seems like it lasts forever. It saves us a ton of money. We know exactly what's in it, and nothing with five syllables is in there. 
We do use convention. This is interesting, though. We use conventional conditioner like you would use in your hair, like to soften your hair. We use that to make our own fabric softener. And that's about the only thing. And we look for the most natural product we can get for that as well. Now, here's the thing. A lot of things that are considered natural and healthy and all cost a lot more money. Um, Homemade-style soaps. I don't know the right word for this. Natural soap, lye soap, what have you. To me, it's just traditional soap. Um, it does cost a little more than dial and, and things like that, but not that much. And eliminating the need for shampoo because you can use it in your hair helps a lot. The other thing that we do is when we get up all our little slivers of soap, we put them in a rag when they're too small to really use effectively anymore, and we save them up. And we boil a pot of water, and we dip that rag in the boiling water for a couple seconds, and then you smash the rag into like a ball, and then you take it out, and then you got a new, basically soap ball, and we'll use that one. And, and when it's down to little pieces, and it'll be a mosh pause and all, but it works great. And so you can actually save money and be healthier. That's why I thought this was a great question. It's not that we don't need these things. It's what's in the things that are in the mass market that are bad for us. And I've noticed things like less irritation in certain, like, you know, in your elbows or the behind your knees. I used to get rashes and things like that that I always attributed to the heat. And what I feel like now is, well, the heat made those things worse, but it wasn't the root cause. And I think it's from getting the stuff off my body. So it's, it's a great idea and it's, it's a good thing to consider as a skill set development too. How to make your own detergents and all. Now, when we make laundry detergent, do we use mass-produced items to make that detergent? The answer is yes. So if the grid were down and we had to be making laundry detergent, we couldn't get more borax, for instance, would that be a problem? Not really, and I'll tell you why. For about 50 bucks, you could put enough away of the stuff you need to make laundry detergent that would last you for years. I mean years. If you're that bad on being able to get that stuff, you're going to be hand-washing anyway because the washing machine ain't going to run, right? So, I mean, it is probably the, one of the biggest things I think for our health we can do is start looking at the things we use for cleaning both our homes and our bodies and go to more natural products and try to do so in a way that saves money. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Backwoods Engineer here. Your discussion last week about skills that are appropriate to rural communities, it got me thinking a little bit. Maybe I should get a certification to be a professional subsurface wastewater operator. I'll give you a little background, and I'll, I'd like you to tell me what you think about this. Here in the Piedmont region in North Carolina, there's this bedrock close to the surface, which causes the soils to be thin and, and gives us problems for uh, regular septic systems. So many of these uh, rural residents have these low-pressure pipe or LPP systems. You have a separate solids tank and a separate wastewater tank, and then there's a pump that pumps out of the wastewater tank. It doses the landscape with a certain amount of effluent water whenever the tank reaches a certain point. Well, it's a good idea for a lot of reasons, uh, the least of which you can pump against contour so your, your landscape can be anything it wants to be. In the area I'm looking to put my homestead, I'll probably have to have one of these LPP systems. Well, anyhow, these guys are, that inspect and operate these systems, um, every one of these systems are required to be inspected by a professional wastewater operator twice a year. So you take the three-day class, you get a state license for, I think it's 100 bucks, and then you can go out and charge 250 to $500 per inspection. That's what they charge. I shoot with a guy who has his license, and he operates his and his neighbor's systems, and he can teach me what I need to know. 
what do you think about getting me this wastewater license so I can operate my own sewer system and then maybe take a few clients, do a few inspections a month myself, and, you know, add something to my monthly income? Seems to me like a good way to meet other homesteaders and maybe make a buck or two. The work doesn't bother me. Like I said, I help my buddy do his. What do you think? Take it easy. Thanks, Jack. Bye-bye. I mean, I think you just answered the question for yourself, dude. Um, it's a low-cost, uh, low-investment thing that gives you a certification that allows you to have a skill set to sell an additional product or service, make additional money, and meet new people. Uh, I'm going to keep this really short and say, why haven't you done it already? And go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Matt in Madison, Wisconsin. I recently went deer hunting for the first time and ended up getting a nice-sized doe. And uh, so the question I have, either for you or maybe Keith Snow, is what do I do with all this venison I have now? I have uh, quite a bit. I have a freezer full, and uh, I'm not sure what to do with all of it. So if you could help me out, that would be great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Love the show. Great question. Let's start off with what kills venison for people. What ruins venison? What makes people say, I don't like it, it's not good, I'd rather have beef? And it's one thing and one thing only 99% of the time, and that's overcooking your venison. Uh, especially with thinner cuts, venison is very similar to beef in a lot of ways, except it's much, much leaner. And I could put it to you this way, like one of the leanest cuts of beef you can get is an eye of round roast. If you've ever seen one, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a long roast, very, very lean, almost no marbling, even on a very fattened up cow. If I cut a piece of that, um, let's say a half inch or quarter inch thick, and I threw that on a grill and I grilled it, right, until it was well done throughout. I mean, I grilled the heck out of it, and I put that on your plate. It would take, taste remarkably similar to a piece of venison that a lot of people say they don't like. It almost gets a livery texture. It's dry. It's just not good. What happens is people get venison and they somehow think, like, you know, you have to be, uh, like, really concerned about leaving it rare or pink. Don't do that, okay? It, you, your venison should be a little bit pink. If your venison's a little bit pink, no matter what you do with it, you're probably going to like it. If you would cook beef that way, cook venison that way. When we're talking grilling, braising, sautéing, frying, that type of thing. So you could get your venison and cut it up in pieces, some, like somebody might consider stew meat, and actually it can be quite tender if you were to walk fry it. But you want to walk fry it till when you pick it up and you bite into a piece of it, it's tender and there's a little pink, and get it the hell off the heat, do your vegetables, and, and, and just mix it back together. In fact, I would say uh, that's one of the great ways to use it, just like you would do a stir-fried beef. Just don't overcook it. Cut pieces that you're going to grill thicker than you would probably normally do. Understand the cuts are smaller, so it's less thermal mass there to bring up the temperature. If you thin cut, take the back strap, right? So we're talking about uh, the piece that would either be the T-bone Uh, or ribeye, depending on you know whether we're up on the rib cage or, or further back toward the rump roast, that whole big long back strap. You cut pieces of that three quarters of an inch thick, grill it really high temperature, get that outside that nice charred color. But when you cut it, if, if, if there's still some pink and even maybe a little toward the dead center, a little bit of red, like a like a a, a rare like a medium rare uh, for beef. 
Oh my God, it's fabulous. Cut it thinner, throw it on the grill, cook it all the way through, and you're like, what the hell is this crap? Right? So that's the big thing. Don't overcook your venison. Some ways to use some of the other cuts other than the things that you would grill or saute or fry. Um, roast venison is exceptional. But again, it's a very lean meat, so we need to go very low temperatures. I'm talking 250 degrees for a long time for like a big roast. So like one of the things I used to do is take the, the shoulder roast, specifically the upper shoulder. You get two shoulder roasts out of a deer. You get the lower one that looks like little round steaks. Those are actually pretty good cut into steaks and cooked like a steak, again, if you don't overcook it. The upper shoulder where you're looking at the shoulder blade, I take two of those together and put them into a pan with uh, some onions and garlic and a little bit of um, like red wine or beer in the bottom. You don't want them floating in it like you're boiling, right? And then you, you roast that in an oven covered at 250 degrees until the meat falls off the bone. It's got to be covered. It's got to be low temperature. And just as you think the meat's about ready, cut up some carrots, potatoes, and celery and add that. And drizzling some bacon fat over it, before, during, and then when you add the vegetables will help keep the moisture in the meat. And you get a phenomenal deer pot roast, if you want to call it that. But it's got to be covered, and it's got to be low heat. And the reality is you can just keep going from there. Here's a great one. Go ahead with your back straps, right? Your, your, your chops is what your butcher will probably call them. Nice and thick, like an inch thick. Take each chop. Wrap a piece of thick bacon around it and toothpick it in like they do filet mignon on the grill. Brush that with a mixture of one-third beer, uh, one-third soy sauce, and one-third olive oil. And season it however you like meat seasoned. You know, Season it like you're cooking lamb and do it that way. It will blow your mind how amazing that is because the bacon will help keep it from drying out, and the thickness will help it keep from drying out. Just don't overcook it. Those are some ideas. With deer hamburger, make chili. Make, just use it like regular burger. If you want to make burgers on a grill, you, it's imperative that you have some fat added to it. Generally, what I used to do was I would get what are called pork butt steaks or Boston butt roast, one of the cheapest cuts of pork you can get, and I would put 20% pork, to my deer meat. So if I had 20 pounds of deer to grind, uh, I would put two pounds of pork into that. And it, the pork meat itself and all of the fat was generally enough to pull it off. Sometimes if it, it was a deer that was taken like in a mountain setting, it was really, really a lean deer, I might up that to 30%. What I like to do now, and one of the ways I keep my beef costs down, is I'll buy large cuts of beef, unpre unprepared, like an entire um, rib a ribeye. Right, So when you get your ribeye steaks cut out of, like you would make a prime rib from, uh, I'll get a whole one, a whole half side of, a, of, a, of a, a ribeye, and I'll cut it myself. Now, when you buy it that way, it hasn't been trimmed at all, and there's a ton of fat on it. And I'll just go through and I'll cut off, before I even start cutting my, my ribeye steaks out of it, and I'll cut off large chunks of fat. I'll put that in a freezer, I'll weigh it out into one-pound bags. And I'll put that to deer meat, since it's pure fat, um, at instead of a 20% mix, only a 10% mix. So if I have 10 pounds of deer meat to grind, I'll put one pound of beef fat in it. And then usually I like to mix salt, pepper, and coriander 
and I don't really know the amounts. Just kind of feel that out. And you can always put more salt on something but not less, so don't overdo it. But salt, black pepper, and coriander, and sage. That makes kind of a sausage, but you don't have to case it. You can freeze it and you can use it like that. If you don't want to be a sausage-type thing with it, then just do it with the beef fat and freeze it like that. Here's the here's the advantage to doing it without the pepper and the, and the salt and the sage. You can always decide, I want to use this pound tomorrow to make breakfast sausages. And then if you do that salt, pepper, coriander, and with breakfast sausage, a little bit of some pepper flakes in there, you're going to get a pretty good sausage to make for breakfast. But if you just want to throw that on the grill with some cheese and bacon, do the same thing. If you're putting it on the grill with cheese and bacon like a classic American burger, again, don't overcook it. You can look at a piece of meat, and you can see when it's cascading over to that place where it's really beginning to cook all the juice out of it. Stop it before that happens. Take it off the grill. Let it rest. Understand with meat, never bite into it, cut it, do anything to it until it rests for at least five minutes after it comes off the grill. There are times you pull a piece of meat off the grill. If you cut right into it, it's bleeding. Right? You go, there's no way I'm going to eat that. Give it five to seven minutes. The internals keep cooking. You don't lose all the juice when you cut it, but when you cut it, now it's pink. Now it's something you want to eat. If it's underdone a little bit, when you check it, you can put it back on. It's, it's not the same as cooking it to the right level the first time. The quality won't be there, but make note of it. When I made this burger at this thickness and I cooked it for this long, it didn't quite come out. And, and to me, I don't care about time. Because my grill might be a little hotter on Tuesday than it is on Thursday because of surrounding temperatures or something went wrong with it or whatever. I want to know what did that meat look like when I took it off and it wasn't wasn't quite where I wanted it. And I know that when I see that again, I'm going to go another couple minutes and I'm going to see what I'm going to in my mind form a picture. What did that patty look like? And what did it feel like? Touch it. How much resistance is there when you touch it? Do that with all your cuts of meat. You'll start to get where you know. Okay, that's ready to come off. And when you have the person that needs it cooked a little bit more done, you kind of know where it is too. And I cook most of my meat by sight. Not by a thermometer, not by a time, whatever. I look at that meat and I know it's ready. It takes a little practice, but it works. I know I went long here. You get into cooking wild game, you get into one of my passions, folks. Let's take another one. Jack, Quentin in Cincinnati. Um, two questions, or, or maybe a question and a thought. First question is, how do you use an all-American pressure canner as a pressure cooker? I read a review that said someone put a steel pot inside there and tried to use it as a pressure cooker, and they had problems with corrosion. Second issue, or I'm not really sure what, even what it is. It's, I'm looking for guidance here. With our current government, uh, with the shootings that have been going on, um, all these, everything I, I hear about new restrictions on guns, I'm curious what your thoughts are. What chances do we have to hold this this back? How do we fight it? Can we fight it? Do we have any hope? I mean, I'd like to think there's still hope in that, you know, being a member of the NRA and calling our, our scumbags in Washington will make a difference. Um, but sometimes I wonder. So, anyway, if you can give me your thoughts on that, I'd appreciate it. Oh, and last thing, to uh, Mr. McLean, who uh, worked at Auto Parts Store, the... Uh, Listen to an interview of that guy. He went back because he was in the Air Force, and he said, we don't leave brothers behind. Man, that's awesome. So guy, you know, finds a great job, and AutoZone will be getting a copy of my receipt 
letting them know why I'm not shopping there and why I am shopping at their competitor. So, anyway, thanks for the show. Bye. On the pressure canner, easy one. You don't do nothing. You stick the food in there and cook it, with some exceptions. My understanding, things like tomatoes and tomato sauce, the acid stuff, never should touch the inside of your pressure cooker. And things like beans, for some reason, should never go inside your pressure cooker uh, and touch the, the surface of the pressure cooker because it can cause things to corrode and what have you. I don't know who this person is that put a pot inside a pressure cooker. There's no reason to do that. A steel pot inside a pressure cooker makes no sense at all unless they were trying to pressure cook tomatoes or something. And I, it would be a bad idea because that pressure builds, whatever's in there is going to come out and go into the rest of the pot. And the corrosion was more likely if they tried to do something like that from that than a steel pot being in there. But let's say I wanted to, let's say I went out and bought some turkey, right? Let's say turkey's selling really cheap uh, right after Thanksgiving. I think, well, I'll can up some turkey. So I got a whole turkey. And I want to can that sucker. And I need to cook it first so I can get it all deboned and in the jars. Well, I'll stick it in the pressure canner. And I'll, I'll pressure can, uh, pressure cooker canner, let's call it that. What it really is is both. So I'll just take it. I'll stick it inside there. I'll put the lid on. And I'll pressure cook with it just like I would pressure can with it. Whatever the recipe calls for, for whatever time it does to cook the turkey through so it'll come off the bones nice and tender. When it's done, I'll depressurize the canner, let it cool off like I always do. I'll open it up. I'll yank that turkey out. I'll strip all the skin and stuff off that I'm not going to use and can. I'll get all the meat piled up. I'll put it all into my quart jars. I'll cover it with stock. I've got the pressure canner cleaned out. I'll stick it back on the stove. I'll put the cans in there, and I'll pressure can it like I always would. There ain't nothing, again, there ain't nothing you got to do to pressure cook With a pressure canner any different than putting the food in there, again, with certain things don't need to be touching vinegar, acid, tomatoes, and for some reason, I'm not sure why, beans. That's the instructions that came with my canner when we got it years ago. Uh, and I've never tested that. And I have no need to pressure can a bean. I have no need to pressure or pressure cook a bean or pressure cook a tomato. About the only thing that I pressure cook are things like meats or when I'm doing squash. I'm doing winter squash. Um, and I want to cut it all up into cubes and put it in and, and can that, what I'll do is I'll just cut up as many pumpkins or uh, butternut squash or whatever it's going to be as I want into pieces. I'll put those pieces into the pressure cooker. I'll pressure cook those. I think we do those at, it's either 10 or 15 pounds, I don't remember, for like 15 minutes. And when you take that out, it's just the peeling just falls off of it. You dice it up into the jars back in. It's so much easier than doing it in an oven or doing it with a steamer, which is the first time we ever did it. We did it with a steamer. Now, that was just a big pain in the butt. We had to do multiple batches. It was so fast to just pressure cook it, turn around, and pressure can it. So easy one there. Okay, on, on, the, on the gun laws, what can we do to fight this? Uh, I answered that earlier this week. I think the number one thing that we can do to fight this is for all of us that own guns, especially the scary assault guns, the AR-15s and things like that, to take people who have never shot a gun before out, take them out with something like a .22 rifle and a, or a .22 pistol and one of these assault rifles so that they can have the very first experience of absolutely no recoil, very quiet, get accustomed to a firearm, then have them shoot something like an AR. An AR is a very low-recoil weapon. It's not what people like. It's just, this, the mindset that people have is that the AR is this two, two, three assault rifle that you don't need to hunt a stinking squirrel like we keep hearing from these ass clowns on television. Um, 
as though it's some kind of super duper high powered round when you know anybody with a brain and any knowledge of ballistics whatsoever knows that that something like a 3006 deer rifle power wise puts the AR to shame just absolutely puts it to shame you look at stuff with something like a 300 wind mag or a 338 winchester magnum or a 300 weatherby or uh, you know some, some of these these higher caliber um, um hunting rounds mid-range bores big bores uh 416 uh weatherbees and stuff like that i mean or 416 rigbees i mean you're talking about magnitudes of power more and you don't want a new shooter shooting anything like that but shooting an ar is a very enjoyable experience if as long as you get past the fear take them shooting Take them out to lunch. Talk about shooting. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about gun rights. Don't talk about the Second Amendment. Don't talk about self-defense. Don't make it anything other than we went out to shoot to shoot. Unless they want to talk about it. And then listen, don't talk. And if everybody that listens to this show would take one or two people who have never shot a gun before out hunting or out shooting, that way, in the next couple months, the popular support would just massively shift because it's the middle road people that are really going to decide on this. If they start calling their congressmen and senators, they're going to put more fear into them. That's the one of the best ways. The other thing is I don't see this Feinstein bill getting done. Nowhere near in the, in the form that it is. I'll talk more about that with the next question because it comes up again because it's on a lot of folks' mind. The next question I'm actually going to have a YouTube video segment for you guys like I've been talking about doing more and more of to go along with the show. But uh, that's the number one thing. The number two thing is um, I'm very upset with the NRA because they were all in on Romney, who I don't think would be doing anything to help this cause for us right now. I don't think we'd be in any different position whatsoever. And I honestly think if you think we'd be in a different position with gun control under Mitt Romney than Barack Obama, you have, there's only one word for you. You are delusional. You're absolutely delusional. But they're the best hope we have right now. The, the NRA is the most influential lobby for pro-gun rights that there is, and I'll continue to support them, in fact, in, in spite of the fact that I'm kind of upset with them. Calling your senator and congressman, start doing it now, but this is the big thing, and I don't want to go back into this because I already covered this earlier this week. Um, I, again, I don't think it's going to go through the way that it is, but they're going to tell you they have to compromise. We, we have to do something. You need to be sending this message when you make these phone calls right now. There are over 22,000 gun laws on the books. The individual member states have a lot of authority to pass more restrictive gun laws if those individual states choose to, and if they do so, those can be challenged in a court of law to whether or not they're constitutional. But this is not something the federal government needs to be doing. The federal government needs to be protecting rights, not infringing upon them. And no compromise, period. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. 22,000 plus gun laws is enough in this country. No more. Don't give us some watered-down version of this pig. We don't want it. Don't yield. And these, when you get these things about reasonable gun control and the Second Amendment being for sporting, you need to keep calling these offices and you need to tell them over and over again, don't lie to us. We know better. Be nice and polite, but be firm. The Second Amendment is not about ducks and doves and deer. It's about the right of the people to be safe and secure in their homes and their communities and to protect us against many things, including the tyrannical reach of government, Period. End of story. No more. So that's what I think you should be doing there. On um, the guy from the air, the ex Air Force guy that works for AutoZone that went back and saved his buddy. We've already talked about that, but I agree. Let's take the next call. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew calling from uh, Michigan. My question is, 
is after the um, horrible shooting in Connecticut, um, people are going insane, basically, trying to get their ARs, AKs before Obama does whatever he has to do, in his words, to ban them. Do you think that this is overkill or people are getting a little too worked up over it? Or do you think they might be legitimate on this one? Um, as far as I know, West Michigan uh, is completely out of AR-15 rifles. Um, so any thoughts on that would be great. Appreciate what you do. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Okay, well, I'm, I'm actually answering this question. Uh, as is, I've been making a habit of lately of taking a, a segment of a show and, and, you know, putting five, ten minutes of the show in video on YouTube. So, uh, you're looking at this on YouTube or you're hearing it on the air, depending on, uh, which way you've, you've come across it first. Uh, so those of you on YouTube, uh, I've been asked, uh, during the last video, is this microphone what you're hearing? And the answer is no. This is my audio microphone that you're hearing here right now. The audience on the podcast just heard tap, tap, tap on the mic and you didn't. Uh, this is done with my iPhone. It's not the greatest quality in the world, but it's good enough. And what we're covering today is a question that just came in from an audience member that I'll restate since you were unable to hear it. And that was basically, it, when we look at the, the hubbub now about trying to get the Feinstein firearms law through, and I just did a video on that, a segment on that, so I'm not going to go through why I don't think it has a prayer of passing in its current form, and I don't even think it'll be that bill that ends up getting pushed forward. Uh, into the house because the house would nuke that thing in a millisecond. They wouldn't even begin to negotiate on it. They would just they would just say, okay, fine, let's have a vote. No, and the no's are going to have it in the current condition of the house. So you can go back and listen to what I really think is going on and how I think it's just kind of basically a false flag. We'll put up this onerous legislation so that we can put up compromised legislation looks re reasonable. And I don't want to restate that, but the question is. With that going on, and it, well, what chances are of getting some really restrictive firearm legislation passed? What will it do? And is all the panic buying of ARs, AKs, and other weapons that are on this list justified in any way? Are people overreacting? And I'll tell you that, honestly, I don't really know. I don't really know the answer to this one because I think it's actually very possible that they'll get some pretty restrictive stuff done though I'm not sure what and how much. A wholesale ban of all magazine-using weapons, anything that uses a ma an external magazine, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. A restriction back to 10-round magazines, military and law enforcement marked, possibly. A wholesale ban of ARs and AKs. I wish I could tell you I think that it's not going to happen. It could. It depends on how many of the people in the House of Representatives, and the Senate for that matter, have no spine, even though they've said they support our rights to keep and bear arms. And we need to keep the pressure on them. But right now with this panic buying, am I going to run out and spend $2,400 on a $1,000 AR? The answer is no. Of course, I own some ARs. Am I going to do it with an AK? No, but of course, I you know have some of those too. So... Um, if I didn't own any, would I see this as possibly a last chance to buy them? Maybe. Maybe. And if it was really important to me to have one, I might go ahead and do it if I had the money and I didn't have to go into a bad way to do it. But I, I would be really careful on making that decision. But I'm also a big person that believes in solutions. And just like with my investments... I like to be buying what other people are not buying um, when they're uh, when they're not buying it because that's usually a smart thing to do. 
My concern with this legislation is if they do manage to ram this pig through um, and, and get the detachable magazine provision in there, and they do it in such a way that maybe weapons like the Remington 750 or 7400 or the 740 that preceded the 7400, which are completely, I mean, Right now, even in their legislation, those are not defined as assault weapons. They're, this, this, you know, in the, even the gun grabber's mind, that's a sporting weapon because, frankly, most gun grabbers don't know anything about guns. That's that's a big problem that we have there. They say stupid stuff like the one legislator that said, no one needs a Glock 19, no one needs a gun that can fire 19 times. He doesn't even know what the gun is. He's making stupid statements like that. The original assault weapons ban was about the way the guns looked, not what they did. There's some of that still going on with this new, much stricter legislation that they're proposing. So I am going to go to every gun show I can between now and whenever this thing gets hammered out. And what I'm going to be looking for are centerfire uh, caliber rifles that are semi-automatic, that are truly sporting guns used that can be had for a song right now. You can find used 7400s, used 740, which is the older model, used 750 remedies. Get new ones. You can go out and buy them like crazy. You can get 10-round magazines for them. Yeah, I know it's not your 30-round banana clip for your AR. Yeah, I am not saying that it's okay that they do this. Here's what I'm saying from a solutions-oriented mindset and a firearms investment mindset. If you don't chase the golden ARAK right now, because you have some, and you're not going to buy more just to have more, and it's hard to find the magazines, and when you can, they're going to be overpriced, so you only buy when you can where you can. And you say, I have a gun budget, and I want to continue to grow my, my gun collection, and I want to do it smartly. If they get this legislation passed, and if they actually manage to pull off banning ARs and AKs, And if things like the 7400 or the 750 and any other civilian looking, because that's what it really is. Again, I don't want anybody to think I'm supporting anything to do with this freaking firearms legislation. This is what I just said in the segment you guys that are not on YouTube didn't hear. We have over 22,000 gun laws in America. We do not need any more. I'm saying let's say they manage to get this past us and do it. And let's say they ban things like the Caltech Sub 2K which I own, the AR-15, which I own, etc., uh, the High Point 995, which I own, right? They managed to ban those. Since I own them, I'm not going out and buying them. Where are people going to move when they want to buy a new gun that's still allowed if all of that stuff is banned or becomes like Class 3 and you have to pay a tax stamp, there's no new manufacturer, people hold on to them more, the price inflates, they're going to go to... The closest civilian counterparts that they can find. And that will be things like the Remington 7400. That, that's what it'll be. It's a sporting weapon. It looks like a sporting weapon. The gun grabbers aren't scared of it because, frankly, they don't know a damn thing about guns. Um, and what that will do is that used market that's sitting there right now, that's dirt cheap, Right, especially if they're a little pitted, a little rusted, the stock's a little cracked, but they're a good functioning gun, that will drive that price up. So at that point, either I've picked a bunch of them up at a song, and uh, I can maybe sell some of them at a profit to acquire some things that now cost more because of uh, things like a, a registration or something like that, 
Or maybe, you know, when magazines come back down and I go, wow, that would, maybe I sell one or two of those and, 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 and now invest them. Or maybe I just keep them because they're good guns. And any other model you can think of like that. And I've been out of that mindset for so long. When I buy a hunting rifle, I don't really look at semi-autos for hunting because I have everything I need that's semi-auto and because uh, I, I hunt in states that don't allow semi-autos for hunting big game uh, at times. So I, I, when I buy a new hunting rifle, I want to be able to take it anywhere I want to go. So I've And I kind of like the classic guns, like the Marl 1895 Marlin and 44 Magnum. That's one of my gun, go-to gun guns. So I don't know exactly a lot of other models that fit this other than a Remington because I'm very familiar with it, and I've always liked it. Um, but you guys, I'd love to hear from you in the comments either on the show, on the blog, or YouTube uh, as well. What are some other models like that that aren't on this ban list, that don't fit the ban, even the blanket ban? And I know that people are like, well, Jack, you're going to ruin the market. Everybody's going to go out and do it. Uh, you know, I have a big reach. It's not that huge. It's not that huge a reach. And I think that those, that most of the people that are freaking out and buying right now are focused on what the media and the politicians call assault weapons, the black rifles, the assault rifle type looking things. So again, I don't want anybody going, they're not assault rifles. I, 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 I get that. We're dealing with the mindset of bureaucrats and politicians, and we need to be set up to combat that. So that's where my money's going right now, into the things that I think will skirt the ban, or even if they don't, I can still buy them cheaply now. So if they skirt the ban, great. If they don't skirt the ban and the price comes up, I've been able to get what you aren't even looking at. So that's something that I would look at as a potential solution. But as I said in the previous segment, we've got to fight this. We've got to fight this all the way. You've got to burn the phone lines down to your representatives. You've got to tell them no compromises, no compromises, no compromises. They're probably still going to compromise. But the harder you push, the less they'll compromise. And again, I'm not saying we should, but you're going to hear common sense, reasonable. The biggest targets... And the ones that they're most likely to be able to close, high-capacity magazines, because so many people that don't know anything will go, well, I don't see why you need more than 10 rounds, which really isn't the point. We all know that. Um, and they will probably, this time, be able to close what they're going to call the gun show loophole. And uh, that's a shame, too, because they may go after all private firearms sales when they do that. Those two, I think, are the most likely, and I think the one they're going to get is the gun show loophole. And I know you're going to, it's not a loophole, it's just, I, I, I understand. Again, don't assign to me the, the, what these bureaucrats are, are, are thinking, but that can be sold to the sheep very easily. There's, they'll show videos of guys going in and buying ARs off the back tables in a gun show and go, this can't happen. And I think they'll actually come up with some way to make the background check on firearms more strict. I think that can be sold. If you can sell it, To the person that's not against guns but doesn't know about guns, that's what the compromise is likely to be. But it could be worse. We need to be prepared for that. If you can get a good deal on an AR right now, buy it. But don't mortgage your kid's college fund to go out and buy one just because you're afraid that they're going to take away the option. And remember, there are other options. Uh, with that, I'm going to pause the uh, camera and uh, go to the next caller. If you'd like to see the entire episode of today's show, go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up episode 1050, or it'll be in the video notes, and you can see it there. Yes, hello, Jack. Um, I want to tell you about a neat little uh, shelter that can be used uh, for um, <clears throat> a cabin. 
the company is S-U-K-U-P, and it's called Safety Home. This is a granary that made little cabins out of granaries. I, I like the idea because you don't have to have a, a foundation. They have ballasts on the sides, which you fill up with concrete, and that kind of foundation. The, they tell you that if you also uh, put a concrete floor in, it's hurricane and tornado resistance. I don't know if it's proof. Also, they have a charity, which they set up these shelters with people to donate money down in Haiti. Okay, so it's really interesting uh, shelter. I can't say anything more about it because I don't have enough time. But one resource I found this on was uh, natural building blogs. You should be earth building blogs, earth bag building blogs. Also, tiny house blog is also a great resource for ideas on tiny cabins, etc. Thank you. Well, that's a great question, mainly because it changes the tone in what we're doing on the show to something a little less... Uh infuriating, because I'm pretty infuriated by all this talk of banning my guns. So uh, let's talk about this. Okay, so I don't know if I'm saying this right, but it reminds me of a kicker from the NFL, Suck Up, uh, which if my, my last name was Suck Up, I think I would change it. I think that's how you pronounce it is Suck Up, S-U-K-U-P. Uh, I've pulled up their website. I'm looking at the safety home. This looks cool. It looks just like a little grain silo. Uh, about as high as you want the roof of a house to be before you go into an upright. Um, the roof is designed in a way that is basically two layers, and air can flow in between, effectively keeping the roof shaded at all times with some ventilation. It looks very secure. Uh, it would be more difficult to break into um, than a typical cabin. Uh, it also doesn't look like a cabin. It, it would be something that a lot of people, if you saw it from a distance especially if you endeavored to kind of hide the door with brush, would just think that's what, it's an old grain silo. And generally there ain't a lot of good to come from going in an old grain silo unless you're someone like me and like to hunt for snakes and things like that because you're a herpetologist, which usually herpetologists are not the guy looking to loot your place. So it might be a bit more incognito, so to speak, than a typical cabin on a remote bug out location. I don't know a tremendous amount about them. I'd love to hear from people that do. I'm going to reach out to this company and ask them if they would be interested in sending a representative on for an interview about these things because I think they're very, very cool. Uh, again, they're made out of steel. Uh, they look just like, you know, if you go down and see a, a, a farm with a big old grain silo, they look like a short grain silo. Um, they are about 234 square feet, I think is what the guy in the video said, uh, interior space round. And round space is actually very effectively utilized. 234 feet of round space seems bigger than 230 feet of square space, quite a bit so. Um, they can make them taller, so you can put a loft in one. As I'm looking for a really remote bug out place and some kind of cabin to put on it, I'm very interested in this now. This this is very appealing to me. Uh, as far as its rigidity, its defensibility, etc., and it's somewhat, you know, not really looking like a house type thing. Um, it's also something that maybe you can build a compound with. Now, I don't know the cost. How do these costs comparable to other structures? My gut is going to be it's going to be pretty guy pretty pretty good. Uh, I, I can't see how it's not going to be pretty good. It's uh, it, it's so simple in how it would be constructed. There's a couple windows 
They both only open from the inside, and they're both steel, and when you open both of them, you have no screening. So I think it would be important to maybe put together some screening that could be installed after the windows are open so you could open your windows without being bothered by bugs. But I think that would be easy. You'd probably frame out a screen with some magnets on the dadgone thing, and once you open it, you just magnet up your screen. Uh, you know, that, that seems like a really easy, simple way to, to skin that cat. And I guess you could frame a, a door uh, for the screen door the same way, but you could probably put a regular screen door in here. I think with the windows open, the doors open, and the breeze, and the way this roof is designed, it might stay remarkably cool in one of these things. My next question would be, can you bury one halfway? That might even help more with the thermal issues. I'm, I'm not sure. But as they can build them higher, they said they can build them as high as you want. You could build a two-story one. You could build one about one and a half stories and stick a sleeping loft up or a living area up. And, you know, if you build it that way high enough to have a legitimate second story, um, you got to give up a little space for your stairs when they come up there. But you could build them more like, more like a typical loft in a cabin where you kind of go up something that's more like a ladder than the stairs. And where that once you're up there, you could close the floor in. Uh, and you could basically have a full living space in the second story as well, though that might hurt some with your roof ventilation. So it might be something you might want to do more like a half loft. Anyway, they're really interesting. If anybody has experience with them, I'd love to hear from you. And check out the website. There'll be a link in today's show notes for it. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Alan and Clark. Alan in Tennessee here. Had a question about improving my gardens with horse poo. I uh, have an opportunity and access to a large amount of horse poo, but prior to adding it to my gardens, I wanted to compost it or process it in some manner so that I didn't introduce a lot of weeds and problems into my gardens and wanted your recommendations for how to do that. The methods I have in mind are I could put it direct into the garden and till it in, but I have a substantial problem with weeds if I do that. I can put it in a regular composter bin with other materials, um, but that takes a while and doesn't always seem to kill off all the weeds that are in the horse poo that we're getting. They seem to be pretty virulent weeds. I've in the process of building what I'm calling a poo cooker, which is basically a composter bin sealed on the sides with large glass doors over top, kind of a solar oven for horse poo or any poo at all, I guess that I'm hoping will uh, kill off the weed seeds and such with uh, extreme heat. Um, when picking up several trailer loads of the poo, I was dumping it on the ground and noticed that it was full of bugs and mites and other things and thought to myself that this will really make the chickens happy. And upon the chickens finding it the next afternoon, uh, it definitely turned into a chicken buffet, and the chickens have been picking through it quite regularly. So the latest thought I've had is to just spread the material out on the ground, either in a separate area or on top of the garden beds now while everything's dormant, and allow the chickens to just go through it as it showed in that uh, in that video from Jeff Lawton. Uh, would appreciate your insight and input, and really enjoy the show. And looking forward to hearing more. Thank you. 
Um, the biggest reason that people have problems using manure and having weed seeds pass through and end up adding more weed problems to their gardening are twofold. One, you're not gardening to eliminate the problems with weeds in the first place. In other words, your spacing is too far apart and you're doing it too much like a farm instead of a garden and you're giving the weeds too many places to spring up. So that's one thing you can do is closer planting densities and, and getting the weeds out as soon as they emerge uh, in loose, friable soil. If you walk out every other day and pull up everything that you see starting to emerge, you'll quickly get to a point where your main plantings will so dominate the landscape that your weeds will go away. So that's that's just a general way to keep weeds down. Uh, and thick layers of mulch as well, which we'll hold off because we've got a question on that today too as well. Okay, then the next thing though is, yeah, you, if you cook compost at its you know recommended cooking temperature, which happens all by itself in nature, we don't have to build a compost cooker to do this, is about 160 degrees, uh, you're going to kill off most of the weed seeds. Why don't people get that temperature? Because they keep getting new manure and they keep adding it to an existing compost heap and they keep getting new vegetable scraps and they keep adding it and they keep getting new uh, mowing scraps and they keep adding it and then they keep getting new brown leaves and they add it. Um, you have to look at your manure and composting as a green. I know it's not green and you've got green horse manure, something's wrong with the horse, but it's not, the green means nitrogen, right? So all your greens that you compost are high nitrogen, so is your manure. You need greens and browns together to get a good compost. If you hold that horse manure until you have enough horse manure to add to it enough browns to get a good cubic meter of compost, and you pile it all together and you layer in, go ahead and layer your scraps in, any other manure, uh, maybe some a little bit of actual green uh, lawn clippings, lots of browns, be it wood chips, leaves, anything brown, hard, carbon-based to go with your nitrogen. And you build up a big pile. Within three days, if you try and you take your hands and you dig a hole about a foot deep into that pile and you stick your hand in there, you will not leave your hand in there for more than a few seconds. You will yank it out because it will start to burn the heck out of you. It will be that hot. If you turn it every three days, and you don't need a big, you can make a pile on the ground. It doesn't need to be a bin. If you turn that every three days, um, by the end of about 18 to 22 days, that will be some of the best compost you can get your hands on. And if you build a pile that big and do it that fast, here's the big secret. Your pile will be almost as big when you're done as when you started. Jeff Lawton built one of these. They put a wallaby, which is like a small kangaroo, in the center of it. And by the end of 18 days, there was no wallaby left. It cooked the bones out of it. There was nothing. It was gone. And there was like a couple teeth, I think, they found is all they found in the pile. If you really want to get artistic with your compost, and, and Lawton calls himself a compost artist, which sometimes flies over people's heads, but usually when he says it in a session, you get some giggles because the compost we think of as being bullshit, right? So a compost artist, got it, right? And he really is. And if you want to really see putting together one of these composts, get the Soils DVD from Jeff Lawton and do that. But that's the big thing. Make sure you have enough browns to go with the green that is the manure, good ratio mix, and, and you can, the people say, you know, 20% this and 30%. If you go 50-50, it'll work. You might have to turn it one or two extra times, but it'll work even with 50-50. But you got to get enough carbon in there with that nitrogen to get the breakdown you're looking for. And you got to go at least a cubic meter. So if you're looking at a round pile, it's hard to figure out what a cubic meter is, right? So you're talking about a pile that when you're standing next to it, it's up to an average man's chest or shoulders. 
And if it's that high, it's going to be big enough around. And you turn and you think, well, it's a lot of work to turn. If you turn it every three days and use a fork, not a shovel, a manure fork to turn it, it it's really easy to turn. Because all you do is start taking the top off and making a pile next to it. And you just keep doing it until the pile that was here is now the pile over there. And when it's as it's beginning to break down, it all sticks together. You get great big. That's another piece of advice I have for you guys. You guys that are working with compost and compost piles or going to compost facilities to get your compost in bulk, get rid of the shovels, man. Get get a fork. I can fill the back of my 8-foot full-sized F-350 in about 30 minutes at our compost heap, taking lots of breaks, talking to people, giving them business cards, telling them about my show, listening to the radio, having a drink of water, and just generally enjoying myself. If I'm out there with a shovel, it would take me an hour and 15 minutes, and I'd have to work hard. So get the fork involved. But big piles, cubic meter or more, and you'll cook that stuff right. If it, This is the big problem. When you keep adding to a pile... It's like you've put a cake in the oven to bake it 350. And the cake batter, you got a big deep cake pan and it only is full to like one third of as big as the cake can be. And 15 minutes into it, you add another cup of batter. And 15 minutes to it, you add another cup of batter. And then 15 minutes, you add another cup of batter. And you're supposed to be done at one hour with your cake. But your cake is disgusting now and it's all mosh paused and parts are cooked and parts are uncooked. And that's what you're doing with compost. If you need something you can add a little bit to every day, you want to go to something like vermicomposting, a worm bin. Or you, you go ahead, if you're going to compost that way, eventually you stop adding to that pile. And then you start turning it, and, you, and that, then, it, then it goes into its process, and it'll take longer. But if you have small amounts of waste coming in over time, those are your two ways to do it. But if you have a significant quantity of horse poo, go get a significant quantity of some straw and a significant quantity of some leaves and make a cubic meter of that, and you'll have the best compost you ever had, and it will cook out in 18 days uh, for you, 21 maximum, and you'll end up with a yield almost as big as you started with. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. My name's Roger. I'm in East Tennessee. I've got a question about crabgrass in my garden. I had some family issues, broke bones and sickness and stuff like that, and garden kind of got overgrown this year. Uh, we now have a lot of crabgrass uh, that's already went to seed, and want to know whether you sh we should till that under, whether we should try to burn it off, remove the sod, or what. Uh, appreciate the show. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. If you till it, it'll probably come back because you probably won't till it good enough and you'll destroy a lot of your soil profile when you do. I don't like to till, so I wouldn't till it. If you burn it, some of the rhizome roots will stay there and it'll come back. And if you try to pull it out, you'll never get it all out. Uh, you can pull it out over time and eventually get enough stuff growing to choke most of it out, but you got a problem. So how would I do it? I would do it the easy low-tech redneck way or high-tech permaculture way, depending on how you want to look at the same solution. I would go get me some cardboard. I would go get me lots of cardboard, uh, thick, heavy cardboard like a washing machine or something comes in. And I would cover the whole area with that crabgrass, and I would soak that cardboard now. And then I would put at least four inches of new material on top of that. And on top of that four inches, I'd put another at least couple inches of mulch. 
And I would plant, I wouldn't even worry about planting any deeper than into the four inches of new material. This would be good topsoil, uh, compost mixture. I just plant into that, pull my mulch back, plant into that, and then when the plant gets up above the mulch level, backfill the mulch around it, and I would go on with life as though I was starting a new garden, even though you're not, because you've had a garden there and you've had some fertility there and all, and all that crabgrass will rot, and it won't ever see the light of day again, and it'll go away. And that's the easiest, simplest way to do it. If you don't have cardboard or you don't want to use cardboard, you can use newspaper. If you use newspaper, I want you to think of a Sunday paper from a major city. That thick, everywhere, soaking wet, and again, at least four inches of cover and at least another two to four inches of mulch. That is a minimum. Sunday paper thick or cardboard. And if you want to go too thick on the cardboard, fine. Here's the thing. It's got to be covered. It's got to be wet. And it's got to be maintained that way for until your plants begin to establish. If you do that, It will break down and go away, and it will help keep moisture in. If you put a thin layer of newspaper down or a thin layer of cardboard down, and you put a thin layer or no layer of cover on it, it will actually turn into something akin to low-end concrete. It will shed water, and it will dry out the very land you're trying to keep moist. People often say, well, I tried it and it didn't work. This is what always happens. It's either too thin a layer of newspaper and too thin a layer of cover, or it's too thin a layer of cardboard, too thin a layer of co cover on the cardboard. That's what that's what kills it all the time. If you get it nice and thick, and I mean the cover and the, the barrier both thick, they absorb water. Thin layers of newspaper, I've seen it. I've seen people newspaper around a tree to keep the weeds down. Put a thin layer of mulch. I'm talking like an inch of mulch on it. It looks great when they first do it. The weeds don't show up, and a tree starts getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and they've built a roof over the ground, basically, and they're shedding all the water, and the tree's getting this great dew drop every night. You know, it gets a little bit of dew, and some of it drips off on the drip line and all, and it should be getting itself some irrigation as the tree gets bigger, and all of it's just hitting that newspaper, shedding, and going further out. So you've got, so it does work. It is safe. We do it all the time. It works great, but it's got to be thick, it's got to be wet, and it's got to be heavily covered. That's what I would do, and that's going to give you the most chance of success, and it's going to improve your overall results. Uh, and what will happen is, really quickly, that stuff will break down. And that dark, wet environment, like crabgrass and all its rhizomes will rot away. They'll form pathways, and your vegetables that you've planted, you'll think is shallow in this four-inch layer, will quickly begin to penetrate. Roots can penetrate down. A lot easier than plants can penetrate up. They'll find little holes and cracks, and they'll get down into that original soil you had. You might have, if you do that, you know, we're in winter right now. You get working on that right now, you might have the best year of gardening you ever had. Anybody in a similar situation, I would do the exact same thing. Another thing you could do first, if you have chickens, tractor chickens on that sucker. They will do a good job for you getting other weed seeds tearing up the crabgrass, scratching the soil, um, I would still, in this situation, go ahead with the big, thick layer of cover and mulch and cardboard. If you do that, you're going to be happy with your results, trust me. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Matt in Utah. I recently heard about an IUL account or fund or whatever it is for individual savings for retirement. I was wondering if you could share pros and cons about it. 
and hopefully help me make my decision a little more clear. Also, if you know anything about pruning raspberry bushes at the end of the season to make them prepared for winter, that would be wonderful too. Thank you. Bye. So what is an IUL fund? Is it some kind of new tax-deferred special thing like a 401k or for special? No, it's indexed universal life. And when you look at that, first I'm going to say, well, what's universal life insurance? It comes in a lot of different varieties. It's from fixed-rate models to ones that are variable, and you can select various equity accounts to invest in. So that means that you could actually hold an investment inside a what amounts to a life insurance policy. Index Universal Life allows you to allocate cash value amounts uh, in a fixed account or an equity index account. So what's an equity index account? That would be something like an index, like the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ 100. So basically it's like having an, a, 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 a Uh, an insurance vehicle that's also invested into a mutual fund that mirrors the S&P 500 is one way to look at it. It's not exactly the same, but that's really enough to understand it. They're more volatile uh, than the fixed universal lights where they basically say they'll give you a specific return, uh, but they're less risky than, let's say, a variable where there's no money actually invested in the equity policy. Um The way it works is when you pay your premium on your life insurance, a portion pays for annual renewable term insurance based on the lifetime expectancy of the insured party. Okay, And any fees then are paid and the rest is added to the cash value. So basically you have this insurance policy. Your insurance company says, we're going we're gonna to buy term insurance for you, annual guaranteed renewable term because it's cheap, And then we're going to take a fee, and then we'll take the rest of it, and we'll invest it for you in one of these buckets that we tell you to put it in. This is why I think it sucks. You can go buy your own cheap term life insurance and have more control over the other money. Well, you can get some tax-deferred things going on. Yes, and you can do that without them. I think it's a terrible thing. I do not believe that insurance should be part of your investment. Insurance is insurance. Something goes wrong, a benefit is paid, either to you if it's a type of insurance like fire or flood, or to your beneficiary, in this case, if you die. I don't like these things. I don't like them. I don't like them. Oh, by the way, I don't like them. I think that they're primarily devised so that insurance agents can pretend to help you as an investment advisor and make lots of money, and I would never put a dime of my own money into one ever under any circumstances, period, the end. About the only way I see to use insurance as an investment vehicle are for high net worth individuals. I'm talking people with net worths of greater than $2 million in cash assets or cash equivalent assets that will buy large insurance policies specifically so they can make it part of their estate planning. It is designed for when they die, and it does allow them to shelter a certain portion of the money that they leave behind. There are really high-end advisors that can do a real good job of making that part of your strategy if you're a high net worth individual. 
individual. If you have to ask about it, you're probably not a high-worth individual, and it probably will not do a lot of good for you to even worry about it. So I would keep my investments, be they short or long-term, the hell away from all life insurance products. I know some of you guys out there that listen to me are life insurance agents that sell this garbage, and you're going to email me today and tell me I'm wrong. Save yourself the effort and trouble. I've been doing this for a very long time, a very long time, and for a very brief period of my life, I actually sold life insurance when I was trying to figure out how to get from the technical side of the world into sales and get some sales experience. I hated it. It was despicable. I immediately understood that I was ripping people off, and I couldn't live with myself, so I stopped doing it. This is a terrible idea. In no world is this a good idea. There is no way that you can't do better for yourself than to manage your life insurance in one bucket and your financial life in another. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Matt from just north of Cincinnati, and I've been listening for about a year now. I had an economic question for you. It's kind of a mixture of personal and macroeconomics. I've uh, currently been kind of doing a mismatch or mishmash uh, combination of your modern financial survival with uh, Dave Ramsey's Baby Steps, and I've been uh, crushing out some debt. I'm at the point now where I have everything in my life completely paid off with the exception of my house and a home equity line of credit that I use to redo part of my house. If I add the two of them together, they're worth less than my house is worth right now, so I'm really not in too bad a shape. The issue is, following Dave Ramsey's rules, um, I only have $1,000 in savings. I do have a decent chunk, uh, well, kind of a decent chunk, of probably about $1,500 or so worth of silver. Um, and my question is, should I still be hammering out this debt, or should I be piling up some precious metals? Uh, I know your original response will be something along the lines of, would you take out additional debt just to get more precious metals? And my original answer to that would be no. Um, but I know that if I hold precious metals, uh, I can cash them in, you know, at some point when the market's high and pay this home equity line off anytime in the next decade. Um, so I've also kind of scrimped down on my normal preps as far as food and stuff goes uh, to allow myself to pay this debt down. And I'm just trying to balance things out because I'm getting a little itchy with QE3 starting. I know the world's not going to fall apart, but I feel like we're still heading in the wrong direction. Thanks again, and sorry for the message running a little long. Well, actually, that wasn't much of a rambling message at all. That's uh, pretty concise. And let me say a couple things. Number one, if you uh, if you're doing what I suggest, and you're saying it's a hodgepodge between me and Dave Ramsey, you're probably actually much closer to it's it's really the same thing because. Dave Ramsey and I agree on just about everything until we get to the world of investing. When it comes to debt elimination and setting up an emergency fund and then or a, a, a short-term emergency fund and then a long-term emergency fund and then doing everything else, we agree completely. What we also agree on is that the only place that debt makes sense is on real property. Primarily because you can't really afford to go out and whip out the billfold in this day and age and buy a house. So home debt, real estate debt, is something we're going to all have to deal with. And a timeline of seven to ten years to eliminate that debt 
uh, versus 30, if you can pull it off, is a good idea. And Dave would agree with that. So we're completely in agreement up to there. And we would probably give you the same advice right now, even though my take on precious metals and Dave Ramsey's take on precious metals is completely and totally the opposite of each other. You don't need precious metals right now. You need cash, my friend. And you need to look at your home equity loan as just part of your mortgage. That's where I would be. If you are not underwater and your home equity loan is not too excessive on the interest rate, which it probably isn't because the rates have been dirt cheap for years now, um, you need to look at that as a single, your, your equity payment and your mortgage payment like one payment. That's just your mortgage. And your priority right now needs to be saving cash. Let me say it again, saving cash. Let me say it one more time, saving cash. The reason, and you've got, and if you had no silver, no precious metals, I'd say maybe we need to be putting something there as we're saving cash by getting, saving cash. Got it? Right? Okay. But since you already have about $1,600 worth of silver and you only have $1,000 worth of cash, you're backwards on your insurance. We just talked about insurance. You insure things. Okay? That's what we do. The primary reason that we hold silver and gold is to insure our wealth, wealth which you do not have. When you buy an ounce of silver, you're insuring wealth. Got it? So you need to build the wealth and then build the insurance concurrently as you go. I would be working really hard right now to save up every dime that I can and putting it into what? Cash. Oh, that's right, cash. So that when something goes wrong, because it will, while you're building up this reserve fund of 90 days of income, you can pay for it with, what's that called? Cash. You want to go get the silver and go sell it to get some cash to solve the problem with. We need to build your life rock solid stable. And if we can put away 90 days worth of your income in cash, you can go a year without a job and you will survive and you will not end up homeless. I know that doesn't seem to make any sense, but I promise you, if you have 90 days worth of cash, you'll be able to pull it off. If you have 90 days worth of your income in silver bars, it's going to be more difficult, believe it or not. And you're having a greater underlying risk. So what I would say is that you need to hold about 10% of your net wealth in precious metals. So your $1,000 to $1,600 in silver got you covered up until you're sitting on at least about $10,000 in cash. As we grow that wealth, we can start increasing that 10% to include the equity in the house. There probably ain't a ton of there right now anyway, so even just let it go for now and save money. As you hit about $10,000 in cash... Then maybe we're going to put maybe about 500 to 1000 bucks in your case 500 because you already got 1600 in the silver. And as we get to 20 then maybe we're going to drop another 1000 bucks in the silver. See how this works? And along the way we're going to keep shoring up the inexpensive things with food and shelter and safety and security and sanitation and medical supplies and grow your preps along with your cash and trail it with the PMs. If you have a big wad of cash and it looks like it's really going to get hairy, if you're paying attention, which I'm going to save till the last question, because it's amazing how, even with all the work I did, how these calls all dovetailed together today, you will have an opportunity if you are not blind, like a horse going around a racetrack with blinders on it, doesn't even know there's a horse next to you, except you can hear him going glump. If you open your eyes and look around you will have time for an exit strategy out of cash to silver if things are really about to go in the crapper. 
You will have time. We are not going to have the economy of the United States be rocking one day and dead the next. There will be a giant telegraph. Here it comes, boot in the ass, that 99% of people will ignore, and it will give you plenty of time for an exit strategy into PMs if that's what makes sense under whatever we're heading into. Because it, it might not. It might not. It might be food. It might be being able to pay your mortgage for a year. You don't know what it's going to be. The most flexible vehicle for that is cash. Silver is a investment. Yes, yes. Silver is a inflation hedge. Yes. Silver is an insurance policy. Silver's not money. I know you're angry with me, many of you now. Silver's not money. It's a commodity that's representative of money. And it fluctuates, even with as bad as our fiat currency is, it fluctuates at times much more volatile than money. And if we have a really big-looking false recovery and silver drops to 20 bucks in the next year, I won't go, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. I'll go, oh, my God, what an opportunity. If you take all of your reserves and pour them into silver right now and that happens, you're screwed If things start to go south, you have time to pull those reserves into other assets. Exiting silver to go into cash when you need cash is more complicated and more difficult than exiting cash and going into silver. Trust me. So right now you need to be saving cash, building up your low-cost, high-impact preps, and slowly trickling silver as a trailing insurance policy behind it. Don't Buy into the bullshit on the AM radio that says, your dollars will soon be worthless. Because the people that are doing that want what from you to send you silver? You're soon to be worthless dollars. Got it? You've got to think rationally. They say, look at the history of the world. And I'll say, yes, let's look at the entire history of the economic reality of the world. And you've got to take a balanced approach. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack, this has been in Portland, Oregon. I was wondering if you could talk about mindset and uh, sort of like uh, self-defense mindset, you know, keeping situational awareness and all this stuff, but I notice you have a special way that you go about having situational awareness regarding to money and finances, and I would really like to hear about the way you think it's, uh, you almost look about look at your finances like a blood sport. You're really active and proactive and I'd like to kind of get your thoughts and views on that. Love the show. Take care. Thanks. Well, with the last call, you just got a pretty good look into the window uh, of the way that I view these things in my mindset. But it's funny that you bring up, you know, self-defense or martial arts, because even if you had me, I would still use it in this analogy. And this is the way I would explain my mindset with anything. If you were uh, looking for a self-defense instructor, And you saw a guy that said, Joe's self-defense. And you, you went inside and you looked, and it looked like a pretty great martial arts facility. And it, had some it looked like the typical place you would go, some trophies or some awards or some recognition and some students learning. And it just seemed like a good environment. And you said, you know, I, I really just want to, I'm not trying to be anything special or spectacular or anything. I want to be able to look after and defend myself if I'm attacked. I don't want to go fight in tournaments. I don't want to be the next Chuck Norris. I just want to be able to fight. And, and Joe said to you, well, you're in luck because here's the deal. Uh, you come in for five days, 
And in five days, I will teach you one technique each of five days. That's the only thing you'll ever need to know. And just know that, practice that, walk around and do that. And if you're ever attacked, you'll be able to effectively defend yourself. You'd probably think Joe is full of shit, and Joe would probably be full of shit. Um, actually, it may not be a bad methodology to learn five to ten techniques and practice them and decide that's what I'm going to But you're not really well-versed in self-defense now, are you? Um, in fact, you're probably going to actually be in more danger. And you're going to be in more danger the way that a lot of women that attend these women's self-defense classes are. I've, I, you know, I had my niece one time. She said, well, we learned today if a guy grabs you like this, and if you grab me like this, and I'll do it. And I, okay, so I said, you know, you do it. And she said, a reasonable technique, right? And I go, okay, let's try that again. And I grabbed her the same way, but then I grabbed her like I would really grab her. You know, where I'm squeezing her, where it's, you know, I'm, I'm being careful because I don't want to hurt her. She's a, a thin gal. She's like 115 pounds soaking wet. But, uh, you know, more like I would if I was really attacking her. You know, and I grab her like that, and she's kicking in. And I'm like, I'm not even trying to hurt you. If I was trying to hurt you, you're done. And there's nothing you can do right now. And she was so demotivated because she felt like, wow, I, I, I was convinced that this would work. And this doesn't work. This doesn't work at all. And that's the reason that most people get hurt economically with their financial planning. Whether it's mainstream or contrarian doesn't matter. When someone tells you, just buy metal, just buy metal and everything will be fine. You'll be able to pay your mortgage off one day for pennies on the dollar with this. They don't know that. And when the, when the equal opportunity clown that's known as your financial liar says, Just invest for the long haul. The market is proven. They don't know that when anybody ever says, just do this and let it ride, they might as well be saying, just go to Vegas, bet on Black 17 every time and let it ride. Just go to the craps table and, you know, I mean, it's the same mentality because you don't know. When I start hearing advisors say things like, you know, one of the things that we need to do with your wealth is insure it with some stop losses to make sure. And another thing that we need to do is maybe buy some options that insure the underlying investment. But let's write those options as well. So then I'm talking to a sophisticated guy. And guess what? You and I don't make enough money to deal with most of those people. Right? You're very lucky when you find somebody like that that really knows what they're doing that will deal with somebody with a net worth under a million dollars. You really are. It's hard to do. Most advisors that deal with the working six-pack, Joe Six-Packs, they are nothing but relationship salespeople. If you're one, I don't care that you're angry with me. You're nothing but a relationship salesperson. That's 99% of your training. Talk them off the ledge when they want to sell and tell them to stay the course, and give them a pie chart that says how their assets should be allocated based on an interview that you conduct with them once a year where somebody that knows more than you tells you what the pie chart looks like, and it don't really matter because 90% of the pie charts are the damn same no matter what when the people are in the same age group and same income bracket, no matter how they answer the freaking questions. Right? So you ask me why I have this proactive stance or how I got this proactive mindset. I just looked at the financial liar industry And the contrarian industry of just buy gold and went, they're both full of shit, so I must do this for myself. And that doesn't mean I don't use a broker. I've got a broker, but he's more like, I don't want to say it, but it all starts with a B. He's more like my B than my broker.
All right? I call them up. I ask for a recommendation. Why? How? How long? When do we get out? Okay. Yeah. I don't like that one. We're not doing that one, Jake. Right? My wife listens to the conversation and goes, I can't believe he tolerates you. I'm like, he knows I know what I'm doing. It took two years to train him to understand I knew what I was doing. I remember after the market crashed, I called him up and go, how's it working out for you now? A year later, when I was doing great, and you know, you know he had clients bailing, right? So we have that relationship now. We have that trust now. He knows what I'm going to ask him, so he has an answer now. And I say, do this, do that, don't do this. Get me an answer on this. Done. That's how. That's the relationship. Because I don't qualify for the person like I would want to qualify for, at least not yet. Person that, that can actually do this for you at that level is working with multimillionaires. I get information from some, I have some friends that are very wealthy and I get pieces and parts of information about what they're doing and I, I use that in my decisions. But that information really is, I'm actually at a point now where a lot of times I'm feeding them information back and they're going, wow, I didn't know that. And some of their guys are going, wow, I didn't know that. But that doesn't make me a genius trader. You're not going to see me opening up an E-Trade account and flipping options around every day. I have a business to run and a life to build. But my wealth, my money, my income, my stuff, I've busted my ass for. Okay? I've busted. And for those that are new to the show, I am not a college graduate. I started out my first job out of the Army making $6 an hour packing boxes in a warehouse, and the temperatures inside that place in the summers in Texas were 120 degrees, and your cooling system was a fan. And I worked nine, ten hours a day doing that for six bucks an hour. I crawled my way up through the telecommunications and outside plant construction industry, and I became successful. And then eventually I walked away from corporate America, and I do what I do now. I killed myself for my success, and I did it all on gumption and work. And here's the thing. That's not special. I don't deserve a ribbon or a gold star. That's what most Americans do, even if they did it through the college route. In the end... The college route for some is an anchor more than an advantage, and some it's an advantage. It doesn't matter. We all have to go out, and we have to take what we're going to get. That doesn't mean steal. It means take it, claim it, create it, do it. And if you do that, and then you say to somebody else, hey, manage my money for me, what the hell's wrong with you? How do you, how, how do you have that mindset? It's because you've been so conditioned by society. That the guy with the tie that has the credential that works for Edward Jones or American Express must know more about money than you. He probably doesn't know jack shit about money. Ask him. Next time you talk to a financial advisor, can you explain to me how money is created in a fractional reserve banking system? And if he can't explain that, and you can, who's the expert? That doesn't mean he doesn't bring value to the table. I've hired plenty of people that I know more about many things than they do, but there's one or two things they're really good at, and I can manage them as an employee. That's how you have to handle your financial advisor. He's your employee. Whether it's by fee or commission, he gets paid for serving you. You're his Got it? You're his employer. This is the mindset we have to have. And the broad spectrum, everything will be great if I just this. It's like buying a lottery ticket and saying, if I just buy one every day, sooner or later I'll win. You might, but you better not bet on it. With what's coming to the American economy, millions, dare I say, 
a hundred million plus Americans are going to watch various forms of retirement and savings be wiped out. Even if it's not all gone, it will be gone enough to harm them in ways you can't imagine. This mindset that I have is not unique. It's not special. You have it too. You're just not applying it to your finances. Somebody breaks into your home. What are you going to do? Say that we'll just wait for it? Are you going to stay the course? Are you going to stay the course while somebody's robbing your house? Or are you going to say, you know what, I have to react to this? I have to get my family out of the way of danger. Maybe I have to take this person and give them a permanent dirt nap. You're going to react. You're not going to just sit there and passively take it. If you hear that your employer is about to lay people off, are you going to at least put your resume together and make a few phone calls, shore up your references, and see if anybody else is hiring? Or are you just going to sit there and stay the course? See, there's all walks of your life right now that when you see something coming or you feel danger or something doesn't seem right, you say to yourself, no, I'm not just going to do what people tell me to. I'm going to take action. Why is your financial life any different than that? Seriously. How in any way, shape, or form is the value you hold in cash assets or gold or money or stocks any different than the value you hold in real estate in your home? You work just as hard for it. It deserves your attention. This is where the mindset that I have comes from. Damn it, it's mine. I work for it. I shall defend this. I look at my community and I say, this I shall defend. I look at my nation, my republic, and I say, this I shall defend. I look at my wife or my son and I say, this I shall defend. I look at the things that are important to me in the world, like the environment, and I say, this I shall defend. Well, I look at my financial life the same way. This I shall defend. I, don't, I will defend it. I will culture it. I will build it. And I might never be worth $10 million. I don't care. But what I have earned, what I have built, you'll have just as much luck prying my hands from around it as you will my guns. You ask me over and over, folks, how do we defend the Second Amendment? 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 And then you say, how can I just invest my money so I don't have to worry about it anymore? Isn't that incongruent? Isn't the purpose of the Second Amendment to defend your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? And isn't the wealth that you accrue and invest in yourself and your family and your community designed to the same end? Are they not the same thing? If you'll be proactive for one, why would you not be proactive for the other? Think about that. Think about that over this weekend. And the next time you're told, oh, don't worry about it, just do blank and it'll be okay. Ask if that's good enough. Would you accept the same answer about defending your home during a riot? Would you accept the same answer about defending your constitutional rights? Just write your senator once a month and don't worry about it any more than that. Or would you say, no, I'm going to take that guy out that's never shot. And I'm going to take him shooting with me. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to write letters. To, I'm going to do all these other things. And even if I don't do all the things I should, I know I should be doing something. I'm not going to accept the answer of just do one thing. And then say, does that, is there any place in my life that's not important to me where that doesn't apply equally? And when you get your answer, you'll know why I have the mindset I do, and I hope I'm imparting it onto you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.